On the 25th of December 1991, the red flag of the Soviet Union, emblazoned with the hammer and sickle, the symbol of worldwide communism, was lowered for the last time over the Kremlin. More even than the fall of the Berlin Wall, this marked the end of the Cold War and the ascendancy of the West. Yet, in the three decades since then, the West has moved from triumph to decline in the face of internal and external threats. I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast, a roundtable discussion on politics, international relations, and current affairs. Today, we'll give you the city view on the crisis of the West. And we're back at the City Politics Podcast after a bit of a delay, but today we're going to be talking about a topic that, well, is probably on the minds of a lot of people, and that is the West and the challenges that it's facing right now in the 21st century. Constantine, look at us, recording a podcast, just like old times. Here we are, feeling very good. Good to be back. Yes, and we are joined by two excellent guests. Uh, The first is Tim Luca. Uh, CEO and co-founder of Transatlantica, formerly of the Mershon Center for International Security Studies at The Ohio State University. His research examines the creation of the West, foreign policy, and the role of generations in international affairs. Welcome to the show, Tim. Oh, thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. We're also joined by Serjan Vucetic, a professor of the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. His research interests involve American and Canadian foreign and defense policy and international security. Welcome to the show, Surgeon. Thank you so much. It's great to have you. I can't believe we're actually recording, uh, especially in the circumstances of a war in Europe, which, you know, quite frankly, when we signed off the last episode of the Politics Podcast a few months ago, I did not anticipate that we would be in this situation. Uh, So we have a lot to discuss. But before we get into looking at the challenges facing the West, we got to do our segment, which is ripped shamelessly from the pages of Reddit, Explain It Like I'm Five, uh, where I ask questions because I'm a big dummy and I need to be given background. Constantine's the smart one. I'm the pretty one. Uh, So the first one is for Tim. Tim, what's the West? Let me answer this by first saying what I at least understand not to be the West. Right now, uh, a lot of people are talking about the West again, and by that they usually refer to NATO, and NATO is a military alliance. So for the five-year-old, there's tanks and rockets and stuff like that. That's not how we at Transatlantica understand the West. So there are different definitions of the concept Some You can define it as an ethnically homogenous group of people in Western Europe and maybe America. That's not how we define the West. Um, You can define it sort of, well, geographically, but that's not how we define the West either. So we define the West as a normative project. That means as a set of principles and values that include human rights, um, freedom of speech, um, the rule of law, um, division of powers and such. And those values have developed over a long, long time in the world. Let's put it this way. Actually, you know, if you you continue to go West, you eventually end up in China, so. (laughs) Great. Thank you. I think that gets us on the page for what we're talking about. Now, Surgeon, I got a question for you. What are the challenges that the West's facing right now? 
Thanks. Uh, so last year, at around this time, your colleague, Professor Indrajit Parmar, invited me uh, to his International System of Power talk uh, seminar, seminar series. And, and the question was asked. Uh, and I answered it in terms of the two hegemonic contestations uh, that I argue define the West as well. Uh, one is a geopolitical feud between China plus Russia on one hand and the US-led West on the other, which some like to call the new Cold War. The other is a struggle for political and ideological supremacy within and across the so-called Western world. And this one revolves around capitalism and democracy, among other things. On capitalism, we have the great financial crisis of 2008, which destroyed the credibility and confidence of what had been the dominant theory of capitalist state design. Sorry to throw another big word, neoliberalism, let's call it. And we're now seeing some new responses, new things to this, uh, various phrases. Phrases can be used here to describe an attempt to re-embed um, financial markets in society, putting them to work for the common good, you could say. As for democracy, the operative word here is perhaps populism, which is not ideology so much as a strategy or tactic to obtain and retain power. And this has to do with the digital revolution. Again, capitalism or precarious economies and the deep anxieties or insecurities about the future, which again relates to said geopolitical feud as well as the climate crisis. So those I think are some key challenges that I earlier said define the West today as well. Thank you. So that really does frame up what we're going to be talking about in this episode quite well uh, regarding the West and its challenges. But before we really unpack what's been said, I got to hand you over to Constantine because we got to look into the crystal ball. Take it away, Constantine. It's my pleasure. I, I like to torture people a little bit because it is torture to just uh, answer questions with yes or no and not being able to follow up on it. But I promise so we're going to follow up on all of this later in much detail. Uh, so. Uh, um, for now, I would just ask you to say yes or no, uh, and uh, uh, we'll start with uh, Sergeant, uh, and he can, uh, you know, say yes or no to the first five questions first, and then Tim, you know, respectively, and then uh, for questions six to ten, we'll switch the order so that uh, you know both of you are going to have that sort of the benefit, uh, benefit of hindsight a little bit. Okay. Question number one, Sergeant. Will future historians identify the Russian invasion of Ukraine as a decisive moment triggering the resurgence of Western unity and Western values? Yes or no? Yes. Tim, yes or no? No. Question number two, Sergeant. Do you think history will be over soon, only a bit later than Francis Fukuyama predicted? Yes or no? No. Tim, yes or no? No. Question number three. Was Huntington correct in predicting a quote-unquote clash of civilizations? Serjan, yes or no? No. Him? No. Question number four, Serjan, will westernization spread during the 21st century? Yes or no? No. Him? Yes. Question number five, Serjan, on average, do non-westerners view the West as a force for good in the world? Yes or no? No. Him? No. And now let's switch it around. Let's, uh, let's have Tim start with the final five questions. Um, question number six, Tim. Is the West more hypocritical than the global average? Yes or no? Yes. Uh, Sergeant? Yes. Question number seven, Tim. 
is the West stronger than Westerners think? Yes. Dejan. Yes. Question number eight. Does the West need a rival or an other to sustain itself? Tim. No. Dejan. Yes. Question number nine. Is cosmopolitanism a greater threat to Western democracy than nativism and populism? Tim. Yes. Dejan. No. Question number 10. Tim. Are the West's problems predominantly of its own making? Yes or no? Yes. Dejan. Yes. All right. Thanks for doing the crystal ball. This is uh, some interesting stuff, uh, some interesting areas of um, sort of, of agreement and also some very interesting areas of, uh, of disagreement. I think the first place to start, I think, is Ukraine, given what's going on in the world as we record this podcast. So in response to the idea that the Russian invasion of Ukraine would be a unifying moment of the West, for the West and for Western values, we had a disagreement, right? So we had a yes and a no. So Tim, would you like to start us off? with uh, an explanation of what you think the influence of this moment will be on the West. It kind of depends also what we see as the causes of this conflict, right? There are two sort of strains of argument there. The one is pretty dominant right now, which is that um, Putin is sort of a psychopathic maniac who wants to establish some great Russian Reich or something, sort of the second coming of Hitler to sort of yeah, uh, over-dramatize the point. And the other is sort of the argument provided by John Mersham and others that um, Russia actually had a sort of understandable security concern um, because of the expansion, Eastern expansion of NATO. A lot actually hinges on who's right in this argument, right? Um, if Mersham is right, then... Um, we will temporarily act in unison as an alliance. And then if the conflict is over and maybe the security issues are resolved, then that that sort of yeah, solidarity amongst the West is going to fade away, I think. And if, if Putin is indeed the sort of second coming of Hitler, then obviously that's, that's going to take a bit longer. But in general, I think we've seen throughout history that, yes, these big, like, I mean, there is another question about the other, right? Does the West need an other? Obviously, that does help to sort of create solidarity within the Western community and among states. But I am worried also primarily for the sake of Ukraine that the solidarity is not going to last very long. Thanks. Uh, Surgeon, I guess, same, same question to you. Uh, what do you think the consequences of the Russo-Ukrainian war will be? Thanks. Yeah, I like what Tim had to say. Uh, well, it's, historians would say it's still too early to tell. Uh, we're what, day 23, 24 of the war? As, it, as the war continues to slide into in humanity and tragedy, I guess we can observe that there have been a number of consequences already, uh, specifically with the question you asked uh, as, and as it relates to the reconsideration of the fundamentals of, of, the, of the West as defined by Tim, which is in terms of NATO. So, so what we see here is some really interesting changes. I don't know if they're transformative, uh, but they could, be, uh, they could be reinforcing certain kinds of uh, identities uh, that undergird the West. 
So we see in Finland and in Sweden a bit of a renewed debate on whether to finally join NATO or not. Germany is rearming in ways that were unimaginable even four weeks ago. Here in Canada, we like to look at the Arctic and the Arctic Council. Uh, this is being either fundamentally restructured or, or, or perhaps replaced with something else. Then, you know, we could, I mentioned earlier populism. So the war in many ways has uh, delegitimized some of the, I guess, right-wing populist challenges to the center, both center left and center right everywhere, but most importantly in the United States. Uh, we see that in US Congress, perhaps most interestingly. Uh, another indicator, I guess, is the inability of, of those of the countries that oppose Putin's shameless war to maintain all the financial and related economic sanctions currently imposed in those that are yet to be imposed, what decisions will be made concerning uh, Russia's place in international financial, economic, trade, uh, sporting, cultural institutions. And of course, what China does in the wake of all of this uh, could also be determinative and, and transformative perhaps. Uh, so it's still early to say, but the potential is, is there for a big change. Uh, those who use geological metaphors to talk about geopolitics or tectonic seismic. I, I don't think they're actually wrong in this case. They might be right for, for once. You guys were both sort of speaking or you know, at least hinting at and was I think they very specifically speaking about sort of uh, sort of the three images in international relations theory. And, and strangely enough, that stuff becomes strangely acute uh, right now uh, with this conflict going on. And those images are, you know, the first one, you know, is that, um, oh, it's individual leaders um, that are in charge of, um, of war, uh, or, you know, that are in charge of sort of international security, uh, more, more broadly speaking. And then the second image is, oh, it's no, it's individual states. And the third one is it's the state system. And uh, as Tim said, the Mersheimer has a very, sort of a decidedly a third image kind of approach to this. Um, uh, and uh, so what I would like to ask you guys is, uh, you don't have to sort of group yourself with one of these perspectives right now, but give us a sense of uh, how this kind of analysis, you know, what is the cause of war and then what can also be the cause of peace, so to speak, um, uh, what's the, the, the locus at which peace is decided. How is that relevant for the West right now and how it responds to this? Well, how is that analysis relevant for sort of the future of what the West does? You mentioned Mirsheimer, Tim, uh, and some contend that this invasion is a, is a rational reaction to NATO expansion. I, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't agree with that. I would actually say that, yeah, if it's about NATO expansion, it's about resentment over NATO expansion, which in terms of images, could be both first and second image. Um, but uh, more importantly uh, than any of this, I think is Putin and his clique. And, and anyone who's watched him closely would say that there's something else at work here as well, something deeply emotional, uh, sort of the level of political affect. Uh, and again, this could be an individual as well as a collective phenomenon. And this makes it, I, I think, even more powerful. So Putin's problem with Ukraine is, is driven by an, an imperial conviction that Moscow gets to decide who or which of the ex-Soviet republics gets to be sovereign and to what extent. Um, so essentially the fate of ex-Soviet nations is, is a function of 
who uh, sits in the Kremlin and, and what they think about uh, the neighborhood. And we're not talking about these nations' foreign policies, uh, but also the extent to which they count as, as fully sovereign uh, nations. And for him and his supporters, I guess the inner circle, Ukraine is not real. So I would, I would go with that explanation. I have to say, I totally agree with you, Surgeon, on, on the resentment point. Um, I think it actually, in that sense, I wouldn't be a diehard Mersheimer defender here. I would say you can make a very similar argument on a constructivist IR perspective in the sense that, yes, there's a material aspect to it, but there is also the, well, the question of uh, uh, the relationship between Western nations and Russia in the past and, and how Russia feels they have been treated unfairly and not respected and, and, and as such. And so there is a lot of resentment, absolutely. Um, in terms of the, the three images or three levels of analysis question, I, I've been wondering a lot about the causes of this particular war and for that, I think you do need all levels to properly explain it. So Mersham, I can tell you one part of the story, right? So the, the Russians felt maybe threatened by NATO expansion. That doesn't explain why you have war. And Chris Galpi actually wrote a very brief, but very, I think, powerful op-ed in the Columbus Dispatch, uh, a very local newspaper recently where I thought he um, provided another piece of the puzzle by saying, well, this war was basically inevitable the moment Biden told Putin, we're not negotiating over NATO membership of Ukraine, but we're also not going to intervene militarily if you go in. And if you're offered with those options, then you're like, well, then I go in. The question then for me and that's actually a piece I'm, I'm working on right now is why would Biden ever say something like this when, I mean, they're not, you know, he has a bunch of very capable people there. They can figure this out too, that this is basically telling Putin, well, then you should invade. To me, the, the idea of a two-level game actually is, is very helpful there because both Putin and Biden obviously have domestic audiences they, and, and they're dealing with domestic politics as well. I mean, Biden's domestic agenda has been rather, well, destroyed in the last couple of years, a uh, month, uh, to, to put it that way, right? Um, the midterm elections are coming up. Putin, uh, Trump, <laughs> different names, similar guy. Trump is rearing his head again. And in a way, this conflict obviously, and that might sound very cynical uh, to some, but it actually helps Biden also uh, in the midterm elections, right? Also passes the buck, I think, to the Europeans primarily. And for Putin, um, I think, in my personal opinion, Putin went to um, the Ukrainian border with his troops to bargain, right? He was like, well, we're not going to um, stand for it. We don't want Ukraine um, in NATO. And you can add the whole sort of imperial mindset of Putin to that. It, it's basically the same story. But... The moment the West tells Russia we're not going to negotiate over NATO membership of Ukraine, 
uh, at that point, he only had the option of either withdrawing his troops, and then basically the West would have called him bluff, right? And he would have gone home and looking very, very weak, right? And he would have never been able to go back there again and negotiate. So he tried to credibly commit himself. And I think when he had that option, he had to go in as sad as it is. And to me, the question, and I find it a very upsetting question, especially in light of what we're seeing in Ukraine. And I mean, I'm sitting here in Cologne, we're having all the refugees coming in right now. The city is um, already crowded with, with refugees. The question I do ask myself is why didn't the West just offer to drop the NATO option for Ukraine? I don't really understand why that was never even attempted um, because maybe it could have prevented this war. Yeah, no, it's a, it's going to be a big debate. And I think especially among historians, uh, less so among political scientists. I mean, we're basically operating on a few pieces of information here. You know, we have Putin's own writing post-annexation of Crimea in 2014. Ever since then, he's been basically denying sovereignty to Ukraine. Yes, you know, he will always blame the West for forcing him to invade Ukraine. I think he actually said that uh, in his invasion, uh, the the war speech in which he claimed to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine, and as, as he as he ludicrously claimed. But in that speech, he said uh, this only applies to Ukraine, right? Not other other ex-Soviet nations are safe. The West is not forcing me to invade all the other ones. Uh, it's it's just Ukraine. So it's it's an interesting twist in the logic. But then if, if you look at his, you know, famous 5,000 word essay uh, that he published on the Kremlin website last last year, I mean, there, you know, he talks about how he can't even imagine separate sovereignty for Ukraine. Or he says something like the sovereignty of Ukraine is inextricably tied to the sovereignty of Russia or something. I mean, you, you can read it in many ways, but it was clear that he and, and his supporters had had certain plans for Ukraine that that you know, to various extents was shaped by this resentment over NATO expansion. But it was also clear that there's something else going on. Uh, the, as uh, Tim said, the reconstitution of, of empire, I, I, I think being number one. Uh, and, you know, whoever you have in the Kremlin, uh, some authoritarian character, autocratic militarists, what, whatnot, uh, with a sense of uh, imperial conviction, you'd probably have a very, very similar outcome. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, the sort of analysis that we've had, you know, I mean, it feels like it's back to realism, right? The eternal wisdom of realism has come back into play. But I think there's a really interesting issue around identity, right? Because clearly, at least some people in the uh, elite that are surrounding Putin view the collapse of the Soviet Union as a great tragedy. And this is clearly an attempt to reassert uh, control over the near abroad, but I don't think it's quite captured purely in power politics, right? So if we look at Putin's war speech, you know, he talks about the spreading of pseudo values, I think is what he called them, uh, that is sort of corrupting not just Ukraine, but spreading into Russia. And this gives a flavor of a more ideological conflict, uh, you know, conflicts over values uh, that uh, evokes to me, you know, the, the sort of Huntington's clash of civilization thesis. 
you know, that this is not simply about, uh, you know, control over geopolitics, but control over ideas. Uh, but both of you see were skeptical about the sort of uh, Huntington, Huntington sort of uh, take on this crisis. Uh, so I was wondering why, why the skepticism over that, other than the fact that Huntington isn't particularly convincing on many things. Well, I said no to Huntington because of his particular argument, right? And it was very sort of based on, on certain ethnicities and religious communities. And, and I think there's a lot of, there are a lot of problems with this argument, as I'm sure we all more or less agree. I think the current conflict is actually absolutely about values and ideas. And this is actually what at Transatlantica is sort of our main topic, um, something that we'll work on. We call it the crisis of the West, right? And for us, um, the way we understand it, and we're actually drawing on the work of a historian, a German historian, Heinrich August Winkler, who's... Uh, maybe one of the most prominent historians in Germany. And he's written a almost, I think, 5,000 page uh, long four volume book on the history of the West. So his defi the definition of the West that I, I explained earlier is sort of drawn, taken from his work as well. So the crisis of the West, in the way we understand it is sort of a um, dissonance between the promise of those values and, and the rhetoric sort of of the values and the reality, the way they're enacted, right? And it is a crisis that manifests itself also on all levels of analysis, right? So we wrote or we conducted a lot of interviews in the United States during a road trip and, and asked people why Trump was elected, for example, right? Because it was just beyond comprehension for us <laughs> at, at first. Uh, now we actually do understand a lot. Sadly, Putin is sort of picking up on that, that there, uh, there is, and we both answered yes to that question, that uh, the West is very hypocritical in a lot of ways. This is sort of what we mean, right? So uh, on a domestic level, we, we promise sort of equality and that everybody's votes will be lifted and all that. And then we have see increasing economic inequality with some super rich um, people who shoot penis-shaped <laughs> rockets into space and others who live in trailers in Ohio and, and deal with uh, opioid crisis, right? At the international level, um, you have this as well. And I think we also both agreed or answered similarly, uh, answered with yes to that question that um, the West does. And we see this right now very, very strongly, right? We're now, we're like the West is back. We're defending freedom. We're defending sovereignty, um, human rights and all of that. Um, but the practice of Western nations has so many times violated those statements and those principles. Right. There was a conversation I attended two days ago where there was a professor of international politics who was like this, saying that the Russian invasion of Ukraine was the clearest aggressive intervention invasion since 1939. Right. And I was like, 
I wonder what the people of Iraq say about this, all right? So the Chinese has, have picked up on this too. There's a sort of sad meeting in Alaska um, they had with the Biden administration after he came into office where they were basically mocking them saying, you preach uh, constantly about human rights, but look at how you treat your own, you know, African-American citizens. So yes, I'll leave it at that. Surgeon, uh, so do you think that there is sort of more at play than power politics? Do you think ideology is, is influencing this conflict? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, when we talk about the West, that too is an ideological category. It's a convenient shorthand to denote uh, a certain collective identity above the scale of nations and regions, right? We, we sometimes call it civilizational complex to move away from this Huntingtonian language of civilizations, right? Uh, and it's a, it's a social category that's primarily relevant to elites, I would say, not so much the masses. For academics, I think the additional question is, uh, so what, what, what uh, political effects does this discourse uh, or ideology, if you like, of civilization have or can have? So what, it's not what it is so much what it does, meaning what sense of direction uh, does it give to people, national and transnational elites, as they seek to understand the world around them, respond to crises such as this one or these crises. Uh, and and, the, and you know, we see this in, in real in real time. They invoke, invoke the West as a way of su suggesting what what governments, uh, international organizations, uh, the United Nations, individuals even should do. Uh, it's it serves different political purposes. Uh, it it helps us ex exalt exalt some of the uh, virtues as inherently superior uh, or inferior uh, to others. We see this perhaps with some of the migration and refugee and internally displaced people discourse uh, in Europe at the moment. I would never say that ideology doesn't matter, uh, but I would say that uh, need, no, no, no system of ideas, so whether we talk about identity or ideology, uh, is static, right? It's not exactly like socks that we change every day. But, but, but it, it does change, uh, it evolves over time through various practices, through various reaction to events and so on. So I, since we're talking about Ukraine, I, I can just mention that in 2007, if I remember correctly, only 20% Ukrainians approved of joining NATO. I, I might be wrong, but it was a low number. Uh, and then this doubled to 40% uh, uh, after the Crimea annexation. But it wasn't a majority, it was 40%. Uh, and so you can imagine what that number is right now. I mean, the city that's being flattened as we are recording this, Mariupol, is, is Russophone, is Russian-speaking majority city. And yet it's literally being flattened. Uh, and so the reaction is not going to be, oh, yeah, you know, we support Russia. It's going to be likely the opposite. So war makes state, right, as well as uh, nation or national identity. And so this, this is going to change uh, tremendously. So in some ways, you could say that polarization that we saw uh, in Ukraine was, was domestic, uh, not to go back to the images theory or metaphor. It was domestic rather than geopolitical. But now it's obviously geopolitical or has geopolitical consequences. I think the, um, the, the case study of public opinion change, I think that's a very, very powerful reminder 
that civilization in the way in which Huntington sees it, it doesn't explain much because it, it is such a static concept, such an essentialist concept. And um, this stuff can change in a matter of, uh, of uh, you know, 15 years, uh, obviously in response to like really, really, uh, you know, like powerful exogenous forces and events, but it's still subject to change. Whereas um, Huntington thinks of civilizations as a very essentialist kind of, uh, has a very essentialist kind of view of it. Um, and both of you also spoke of this, um, this really tricky, this really tricky sort of um, uh, relation between international uh, issues and domestic issues as far as the West is concerned. And I see that. Um, uh, Tim said that, well, it's difficult for the West to sort of, um, and that's why you probably said that, you know, he, he gets high grades, the West gets high, high grade marks, high marks on, on, on hypocrisy. It's sort of the West is being called out on doing stuff that don't that doesn't live up to its image. Okay, at the same time, um, there is the the danger of false equivalence here, uh, right? In the sense that we say, well, you know, the West oh, it does all of these bad things, so it shouldn't call out other parts of the world from you know not doing what they do. But obviously, there is quite a big difference. As bad as uh, lots of domestic um, problems of the West are, there's quite a difference between that and, um, you know, flattening a whole city um, for some very, very ill-conceived kind of political purpose. And so I think it's really dangerous to, to, to not to sort of not call out that, that, that false equivalence. Uh, now, the question is, you know, if you put all of this together and then sort of uh, create a synthesis, is it even possible for the West, and, and I, I'm a bit of a Star Trek geek. So, you know, when I think of the West, uh, sort of the way we want it to be, maybe, uh, I'm thinking of the United Federation of Planets, right? Uh, the sort of the main sort of, uh, uh, sort of the main sort of interstellar sort of uh, federation, uh, you know, that where Earth is part of a, a broader sort of alliance and more than just the military alliance, a community of values actually that goes beyond our own planet. Uh, and it, it is always portrayed as, as robust, you know, they have like starships and they, they shoot others all the time. I mean, you cannot make good science fiction without that. But I think there's more to that. It's robust. It can defend itself. And it has shown that, you know, over uh, thousands of years in different conflicts that are portrayed, you know, in this, in this uh, obviously fictional universe, it's robust. It struggles with its past. It has been born by like lots of really bad stuff, nuclear warfare, for example, and almost planetary destruction. Um, but in the end, sort of it rises to a level and it rises to become an entity that is the best that it could be on, you know, in that background. It is robust and yet benign and, and domestically benign as well as internationally benign at the same time. And I apologize for the, for the science uh, fiction reference, even though in IR I'm, I'm in good company sometimes with this stuff, right? Uh, anyway, but I think it's a serious question that I would like to, to ask you. Is that kind of West possible? The one that is sort of that that is like that that is aware of its past failings, of its hypocrisy, uh, of its ongoing problems, um, but that still is able to project force and, and be robust in a way that sort of makes it a force for good, also on a global scale. This is a fantastic setup. Uh, there's so much that I would love to respond to, and I won't uh, be able to do all. Just to clarify something, I'm a huge fan of the West the way I define it. I think it's very awesome, right? Human rights, freedom of speech, again, justice for all and equal standing in front of the law, things like that. Those values are terrific. And if there's one thing, and, and that's also sort of 
that makes the West unique, really unique, and, and this is, I know I'm treading on dangerous territory, it's that it has mechanisms to self-correct, right? So the West commits bad crimes, makes mistakes, uh, things, but due to the fact that we do have freedom of speech that's guaranteed by law, and there is a system of law, and there is a division of power, there is actually a way for, for people to come up and, and have these debates like we are having right now, right? Where we disagree on things and uh, at some point maybe certain flaws that the West has or mistakes can be corrected. So that's one great thing. Uh, and that's actually what we're trying to promote uh, Transatlantica, right? We want to have more debates. And it is, Surgeon said that, and I absolutely agree, it's not a monolithic thing, right? It develops, it changes, it needs to change, it needs to adapt. And that's also what makes it very good and special. And again, I rather, I had a discussion with somebody from Die Linke in, in Germany who was uh, telling me like, well, the West is all like, well, I don't know. People don't really like the West. Uh, you know, I have friends in Dubai and, it's, uh, uh, and they're actually really happy with their life. Uh, as long as you don't criticize the government, you're fine. I was like, I'm sorry, <laughs> but I don't want to lie at the beach and live under a regime like that. Right, so I absolutely, you're absolutely right that um, there are tons of benefits um, that the West, West provides. There is a reason why it has survived and developed over time, over across history. But I do think that there is a higher standard for the West and for other countries, precisely because we sort of try or do take the moral high ground so many times. And if you do do that, then you also have to be measured um, by your own standards, right? And we do fail a lot of times. So you bring up Star Trek. I always have that sort of matrix um, scene where Neo meets Morpheus for the first time. And Morpheus is like, well, you're here, right? Because you felt your entire life that there's something off, right? It's like a splinter in your head. And this really reminded me of the morning when I saw that Donald Trump got elected president, right? And that was just a couple like months after Brexit, where I was like, something is really off here. Fortunately, we don't have those, you know, tubes in our neck, but actually the problem might therefore also be more difficult. We all have to do something and, and continue to develop this project the West um, forward. And, and that also means having very critical and uncomfortable debates and asking difficult and uncomfortable questions. And right now is a time, to be honest, where this is very difficult because everybody's very understandably very emotional. I would agree with a lot what you had to say. Uh, I mean, when you mentioned Dubai, I don't think there's a some kind of moral equivalence for the world that Dubai stands for and the world that, I don't know, Dublin stands for. I, I think most people coming to this podcast, listening to this podcast would rather have liberalism than not have liberalism, would have human rights than not have human rights. That, that's not even a, a debate. Uh, I think when we talk about the West, 
there are many things to keep in mind as, as, as we've outlined earlier, but one, one of them is that there's no such thing. I mean, it, it, it does not exist in the singular. It needs to be replaced by the idea of many Wests. And I think that's where you're going with you, Constantine, with, with this Star Trek analogy, right? And, and also what Tim was going with the idea of the West having self-healing powers. Well, it's subject to multiple traditions. Uh, some of them, which we associate with good things, others with bad things. And, and this form of multiple traditions defines countries within the so-called West. I mean, uh, I would not call it unique, but you know, it's distinctive. I teach at this University of Ottawa uh, it's a bilingual university. I just looked up one of the inscriptions on, on a bronze and burgundy uh, historic sites and monuments board of Canada plaques, uh, which is located straight in the center of our campus. It says, quote, the University of Ottawa serves a meeting ground uh, as a meeting ground for two of the most prominent intellectual and scientific traditions of the Western world, uh, meaning Can you know, Canada being part of both Anglo and Franco worlds, right? Uh, and so, you know, even in that very simple thing, you see that the West, uh, you know, when we think of the West, we think about many, many things uh, with, that are marked by multiple traditions, internal pluralism, and whatever you want to call it. In terms of self-correcting, yeah, and I think that relates to the question about otherness. Uh, any, when it, whenever we think about any identity and in, 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 in the philosophy behind the concept and, and the research, social scientific research behind the concept, there's an assumption that you need another, right? In order to have self, I mean, self-other relations going way, you know, back uh, in, in modernity. Uh, and it could be, it could be, you know, one of those things that we just dreamed up and are now using and verifying and essentializing, putting that all aside. The question here is whether you can define yourself against your earlier self, your past self, the imperial racist uh, uh, misogynist West, could you use the, those uh, those negative potentials to create something completely new, better, progressive, and so on? I think that's a question worth asking. So instead of constantly wondering, you know, which are the others uh, distributed in space that you use as potential rivals or enemies, I think that was uh, one of the terms used in the yes and no questions of rivals, right? Uh, you can find the rival to your current self in your own past. And, and you know, Germany, for example, post-1945, was precisely constituted in that way. Uh, you know, the constitution is, in fact, defining oneself against the past self. And if we could have that at, at a larger scale, at the scale of this thing we call the West, I think that would be a potentially a very good uh, thing for, for everyone. Now, that still leaves questions of, capitalism, climate change, and all those other things aside. So I'll leave it at there. Well, this is this is great. Thanks, Sajan. What's the best way to do that? What is the best way for the West to do that? And now we're getting to another classic of uh, IR theorizing that is strangely acute uh, right now. Uh, and, you know, when, uh, in my mind, there's, there's four ways that can be done, and they speak quite neatly to different traditions in IR theorizing. So how does the West project, it sort of not project, what, is the, what can the West do uh, externally in order to sort of support processes uh, of becoming a better uh, version of oneself in the future, domestically and externally? Is it power? Is it law? Is it economics and economic integration? Or is it the diffusion of ideas? 
which one is it? Or is it a combination? Uh, is it all of them? Um, are they mutually uh, dependable? So how does this work? Well, I think the, all of these are mutually uh, inclusive things. I mean, you know, power has four faces or how many faces does it have, right? It, it all depends how we conceptualize these things. So yes, power includes law, includes economic progress of some kind and diffusion of ideas. I, I think, I mean, for all, you know, we as students of European politics, we like to poo-poo this idea of normative power Europe, right? Uh, I mean, it's 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 a uh, it's one of those things that you expose graduate students to, uh, in order to uh, show them, you know, how to shoot down ideas. It's, it's kind of like a shooting gallery with uh, the idea of normative power Europe uh, playing the role of the duck, uh, and then you say, okay, so here's the hypocrisies, here's why it doesn't work at the level of implementation, and so on. But that's just one tradition. I mean, uh, and, and that tradition, you could argue, you know, was based on a, on a very, very kind of myopic reading of liberalism too, right? Uh, there are all sorts of other liberalisms that we should consider when we think about ways of uh, having the West uh, lead by example, as opposed to by muscle. Um, and, and one of those is, uh, you know, this idea that you can reform from within uh, to become, uh, you know, less imperial, uh, less racist, less less misogynist, all those things that I mentioned earlier. How do you amplify uh, those potentials in a, in a situation uh, which I mentioned earlier, where you have these deep disorienting crises wrought by uh, the you know, global recession uh, and now you know, the <laughs> even greater recession wrought by, 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 uh, by the war in Ukraine is, is a big question. And there are no good answers, right? Because you ideally want to uh, maintain law, you want to maintain democracy, you want to maintain all those legacy institutions because they've proven to be least terrible of all the other ones that, you know, the West has tried uh, in, uh, over, over the course of history. How, how do you maintain them while at the same time maintaining all, all these progressive potentials? Uh, because what we've seen since about 2016, which is often taken as a year where you know, we saw this tremendous uh, and dramatic rise in populism uh, is that, uh, yeah, you know, you don't, you, liberals do not have convincing answers. Uh, and, you know, we mentioned the link earlier, Tim mentioned the link earlier, who dream about Dubai. But I, 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 I think, I think the, both, I, I, I think the greatest threat comes from the right, from radical conservative movements and, and, ideologies and, and, and leaders than, than from the left. And for them, the model is not Dubai. The model might be something like Singapore, right? And if this city state with you know, high GDP, that's you know, absolutely uh, in, in, in many ways, how would I say it? Uh, a, a, an example of a modern surveillance society, uh, concentrated surveillance society. If this can be scaled up, by someone like China, then I'm not sure the West has much fighting chance. I mean, I'll, I'll, it's a provocative thought, and, and I will leave it at that. Well, there was so much going on there. I don't even, I'm completely overwhelmed. Uh, great, uh, great stuff. I, yeah, and, and Surgeon already uttered the phrase. I think first and foremost, we do need to live by example. 
we need to show that we are actually serious about these values or we just stop pretending that we are right and then we're just a military we're imperialist we're economic project that's a very different idea of the west than i have and i want to stand for right mm -hmm. so i mean even even people like Murashama, i mean i i called him recently i think the most the oldest influence on this planet now um since his talk from 2016 right where he talks about crimea and why it was the west fault I mean, he cheats. He's not. He's he's getting away from his sort of systemic explanation, right? He talks not just about NATO expansion. He talks about EU expansion, right? And he talks about criticisms of the human rights records and all of that, which are well founded. I think he does have a point where he says, "I love democracy, and so do I, and so do we, and we love these values." But it's difficult once we try to sort of force them on others, right? And it creates a reaction. And we see that in the economic sphere, in the military sphere, in the political sphere. Clinton and George W. Bush basically pursued the same strategy with different means, right? The one created sort of institutions across the, the globe and tried to sort of legalize everything and, and sort of diffuse uh, Western values in that way, and the other use military force to sort of deal with, with that and, and try to just topple regimes that are not like ours. I think that has shown to both not work. So this is the question, I think, for, well, our generation and the next couple generations, how we want to do that. Now, that's really interesting responses from both of you. I mean, if Mearsheimer is the oldest influencer, then I'm really looking forward to his TikTok account because, uh, you know, I want to see Mearsheimer doing a, a meme dance. Uh, but uh, <laughs> what I find striking about this issue of Western hypocrisy is it, it does highlight perhaps the need of the other, right? I mean, when we think about the civil rights movement in America, uh, it's often portrayed as something that came about internally, you know, from advocates like Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, but what gets left out of that narrative is how strongly the Soviets were leaning on the Americans in forums like the United Nations to point out racial inequality and sort of as a means of pointing out the superiority of Soviet communism, right, which treats all people as equals, you know, on their ideological map. You know, we know that they didn't uh, literally, and that pushed a lot of the discourse around sort of anti-racism in America. Uh, perhaps the decline and disappearance of the Soviet Union enabled hypocrisy because there wasn't a counter hegemonic force in the international system. Uh, so I guess, you know, does this uh, sort of make us think of the necessity of the other? Is the other, uh, do we need to use Constantine Star Trek metaphors? Uh, do, does, the, does the United Federation of Planets need the Klingons in order to live up to its values? Uh, and if we're left without the other to challenge us, do we become hypocrites? Yes, I, I think Surgeon made a very good point. I really like this argument too, that we don't necessarily need an other in, in space, but we can use ourselves, our historical other in time. Uh, and this is kind of what we want to do again with Transatlantica, learn from the mistakes that we've made, sort of have a critical dialogue about those mistakes and improve based on that, right? 
in a way, your point that uh, the demise of the Soviet Union opened up the sort of space for hypocrisy, I think that's absolutely correct, right? I mean, the story that I'm telling myself, and I'm also planning to write up at some point, uh, other people have, have done that already in, in maybe different ways, is at the end of the Cold War, we were all, yay, we won. This is terrific, right? Now, um, and then you have the Huntington and the Fukuyama arguments. Again, sort of Clinton and Bush were sort of seeing this time, I think, as an opportunity to really take the West global, right? And then we have September 11th, 2001, which was sort of a wake-up call where we are like, oh, wait, there are people in this world who don't like us the way we thought everybody likes us. And then we also conducted the, the response that we, we gave to that event, right? Basically violated like almost every value that we ever held sacred, right? Guantanamo is still open as far as I know, I haven't checked, plus the Iraq in, intervention. And then that sort of doesn't wind down really. You have Afghanistan, you have Iraq, and then you have the financial crisis of 2008 and this whole idea of neoliberalism, you know, we're all gonna get rich and wealthy and it's gonna be boring as Fukuyama basically says at the end of his article. That kind of gets thrown into the trash. After we sort of recover from that, we realized that it was, People from our own Western sort of wonderful Brooklyn and God knows where, San Francisco, London, uh, or Reykjavik, who caused this whole mess and basically cost millions of people their retirement savings, right? A lot of people who maybe not consciously, but I would say some of them more or less consciously then later vote for Trump or Brexit. So then that's over. <laughs> and then we have... Um, 2016 and then we have COVID and now we have Russia. I mean, it's been a rough ride for the West. Yeah, yeah it's been a, it's been a, a, a few decades of pretty intense historical change considering what we were at the end of history in the 1990s. Uh, but to, to keep this sort of line of thought going to you, Surgeon, uh, you know, when you talk about the sort of past being able to be the counterpoint uh, for you know hypocrisy, I mean, does that work uh, when the past is dead, right? You know, the counter hegemony of the Soviet Union in the 1960s was very much alive, right? You know, Khrushchev could go to the United Nations and bang his shoe on the table and couldn't mm -hmm. be ignored, uh, whereas you know the past gets curated and gets it's not as a uh, agent driven as an active counter hegemon. So I was wondering if you have uh, further thoughts on the topic. The question is a good one. And earlier you mentioned uh, civil rights, the United States. Uh, and I, when, you, when I teach, I assign Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, Riverside Church speech, the so-called Beyond Vietnam speech, right? Uh, delivered uh, uh, in 1967, where he says that you know poverty, militarism, and racism are going to destroy this nation, and this works because it's happening in the context of the Cold War. Absent Cold War, it would have been just another speech given in Upper Upper West Side, right? Uh, that you know falls on some ears, but not on most ears. And 
and yes, you, you can definitely say, you know, the United States became a more liberal or emphasized its liberal tradition as opposed to these other traditions uh, during the Cold War for reasons of the Cold War. Now, what's the current situation? Well, here, the, the, these sorts of speeches in which you, you're, you know, things such as racism, poverty, and militarism are mentioned. They're mentioned by the new, new right. Uh, they're mentioned by radical conservatives. I mean, when they talk about racism, they, they, they're likely to be talking about this, you know, what, what they argue is reverse racism, racism against the white majority. When they talk about militarism, they talk about, you know, supporting Putin. And when they talk about poverty, this is perhaps the most interesting one, right? Because at the heart of their critique uh, is the critique of globalization, not just as an economic phenomenon, but as a, as a wider transformation of social power. Uh, and uh, this globalization for them represents the triumph of liberal managerialism, as they like to call it, uh, and a new class uh, of managers, administrators, experts, business elites, bureaucrats who have become the world's dominant power holders. So for them, this is the West, right? This is uh, elites who like to talk about themselves and how great they are and how you know, they have ability, these self-healing uh, properties and abilities. And, and it's a critique of this attempt to expand uh, managerial structures, uh, the power of experts, uh, the power of their knowledge and authority. This seems to win votes. Now, to me, the question is, because these guys are smart, right? They're not just dumb populists as they're often portrayed in the media. There's an, an entire body of thought, they call it the new right or the new, new right that goes back at least to the 1960s, uh, you know, French and German uh, attempts to undermine liberalism. And these are people who, you know, took Gramscian theory from the left and said, oh, these are some really good ideas on how to win uh, wars for cultural hegemony. And uh, let's adopt them for our purposes. Uh, and so from Lenin, they borrowed this idea of the, of the enemy, also from Carl Schmitt, but obviously Lenin as well. And, and now we're seeing, we're seeing this uh, enacted in, in you know, everyday political practice, electoral practice, but political practice more generally. And against this I, erosion of diversity and tradition, as they like to say, they stand up for those left behind, uh, those who feel threatened by and, and uh, uh, resentful towards the cultural cosmopolitanism uh, that delights these so-called managerial elites. So the kinds of speeches that, that are given now and the kind of you know, effective reactions that they receive tend to be very different from those that you know, we celebrate from the Cold War era, right? I wonder what the war in Ukraine does uh, to the new, new right. Uh, on one hand, we have you know, folks from Trump, from the Trump family to, I don't know, Nick Fuentes and, and other TikTokers who are you know, openly supporting Putin, calling him genius and so on. So, and, and, and you know, Matteo Salvini disgracing himself, showing up in Poland, right? Uh, and, then, and then being treated by t-shirt performance by, by a mayor of a Polish city with very good memory, right? And, and then this looks, you know, makes them look really terrible and perhaps kills their uh, political future. Uh, but then there are others, you know, who, who are kind of hedging their bets currently. Uh, right now, you know, they're supporting the center in various ways. You know, let's respond strongly uh, to Putin and others. But the question is whether this is transient or transformational. And earlier I said in the short term, obviously, it's hugely transformational. But you know, crisis come and go. I mean, I, I came to Canada as a refugee as well. 
I lived through all of this and not, not exactly the same, but, you know, sieges, advances of armies against populations that the West supports uh, morally, mostly. Uh, and, and, you know, you end up with, with basically nothing. Essentially, it's just a, a, a chapter in a book on ethnic conflict or on, on, on civil war or something like that. You know, no transformation. And, and this was the 1990s, the height of the end of history moment, right? And at that time, too, we discussed Huntington as well and how Huntington and his theorizations were never outside the social world, but part of the social world, because, you know, leaders of nations were reading them and saying, but Huntington says this is a civilizational fault line. So therefore, let me let me send, the, you know, uh, uh, several regiments to ensure that it's solidified through, through the force of arms. And, you know, I, I see some other. Uh, some other intellectuals from the West being used in similar ways today. I would like to see some some good leadership uh, in, in the West, you know, and right now it seems to me <laughs> that it's missing. This Machiavellian virtue is somehow virtual and it should be real more, or, or rather more realistic and, and, and more real. Uh, I'm not seeing it. And I worry that this, this potential uh, will, be, will be gone. Uh, will be, you know, next time we, we meet to have this conversation, it'll be, oh yeah, remember how in uh, 2022 in, in mid-March, there was a huge potential for a transformation and look what we got, uh, you know, even stronger charges of hypocrisy and, and complete aimlessness. I, I was just thinking this is, so what you're pretty much saying is we need charismatic leadership, and I've just sort of added the charismatic here because that's how we sort of think of leaders mostly. It doesn't have to be charismatic, but we need leadership, and there needs to be some charisma in there. But in order to be the sort of the, in order to carry the banner of functionalism, right, of technocratic problem solving, and that seems to me sort of almost an, a paradoxical contradiction in terms, right? Because, and I'm saying this not because I say, oh, this is, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm saying this because I, I, I struggle with the same kind of, uh, with the same kind of contradictions. So, and I want to add COVID to that. Uh, and I think that fits into it just like the other stuff, you know? So Saturn is saying, oh, so we have this, this drive towards, uh, you know, functionalism, both domestically and internationally, in the sense that there's sort of technical, technocratic problem solving, but it's governed by, you know, elections in some ways, and sometimes it's governed by some sort of permissive consensus. And that's actually worked really well for the West in many, many ways. It's, it's a sort of a, it's sort of guaranteed peace in Europe, uh, economic growth, and, and also sort of a fairly stable democracy. And now that is being challenged by populists um, uh, domestically, and it's challenged by, um, by um, well, proto fascists, uh, neo-fascists uh, uh, from, from abroad uh, that, that, that wage uh, destructive, aggressive wars. And here the West is, and I want to say you can add COVID to that too, because COVID too has seen the same sort of contradiction between sort of functionalism on the one hand and technocratic problem solving embedded in democracy, but in an uneasy alliance sometimes, so to speak, or an uneasy enmeshment. And on the other hand, this populist challenge. Um, so the question is, can you mobilize charisma on behalf of this mixture of elite uh, representative democracy that is technocratic in some ways, but then it's also uh, sort of based on popular sovereignty in others? Uh, how do you create a movement in favor of uh, in favor of uh, that mixture of um, of uh, technocratic problem solving and functionalism on the one hand and democracy on the other? What would, what would a good leader need to do in order to, to sort of inspire people of that sort of thing? Leadership, yes. I'm so glad Surgeon brought this up because I, I've had 
several discussions about the role of leadership recently. I'm not so sure if we need a Machiavellian leader right now. I'm also not even sure. I mean, charisma always helps. I think what we need right now are leaders who actually talk straight to people and also tell them that not everything is going to be fine and and we're the west and super duper but that there is a there is a crisis there is also a moment of opportunity but we also really need to do this together because charisma okay let me let me go from this uh, from a different direction we again we talked to americans we did 50 interviews over the course of three months and then two follow-up trips in 2018 and we just published a book in November. I have a little promo uh, thing at the end for, for listeners of this podcast. But what surprised us maybe the most, yes, is we interviewed a lot of people on the left, right? People who voted Democrat, and we asked them, why do you think uh, people elected Donald Trump? And what really surprised us was by how frustrated many of them how disappointed many of them were by barack obama right so here you have the most charismatic leader that we've seen i don't know in the last 50 years at least i think maybe john f kennedy i don't know i mean i i i i went door to door on on uh, ohio state's campus and woke up hungover college students to you know tell them to vote for barack obama in 2008 and he was sort of the you know hope we can believe in um but then then his performance was obviously marred by republican um sort of efforts to to obstruct him at every step of the way but then also afterwards, he's now, and those are not really my words, but seen as sort of a sellout in a lot of ways, right? He's doing like Netflix shows, he's giving big talks, getting paid millions of dollars, blah, 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 blah. And people are like, oh, it's just another story of somebody coming up with these great, you know, speeches, and we all believed in him, and 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 then it turns out to be a disappointment. We interviewed people who were actually um, Republicans in Utah who said they had never voted for a Democrat, and they voted for Obama, right? And they reported that several of their Republican friends had done that. I'm very sure, and they said they would never ever do that again, right? So when it comes to leadership, I think honesty. Um, right now and sort of authenticity those are the things you know we don't need somebody who's just charismatic and holds great speeches but somebody you can actually believe that what they say they actually mean so in that sense angela merkel <laughs> would now make the turn was a better leader in a way she was uncomfortable with sort of all the charismatic shows that barack obama did she was also seen as a, a lame duck by many for uh, a long time. Um, but I think we might actually miss her because when she said something, as in the refugee crisis of 2015, right, then and, and when she did get emotional and said, okay, we can do this, then people actually 
believed it. And she actually did do that. So those, I think, are kind of the leaders we need nowadays. I'm glad you posed the question in terms of charisma. And, and I like what Tim had to say. And yeah, I, I think you, we might actually miss Merkel. But I'm the guy who also misses the Cold War. And I don't mean this flippantly, <laughs> right? I, I, re I really don't. Because for me, the arrival of the end of history was akin to what Ukrainians are experiencing right now, right? Exile, dispossession, you know, complete refugee randomness for many years. Uh, so yes, in that, in that sense, the Cold War was better, right? So I mean, not not to not, not to put a, a, a kind of critical point on the idea of political nostalgia, but you know, we're all nostalgic, and and you know, we can't uh, accuse uh, the other guy of being nostalgic. It's 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 part of a, it's part of the uh, uh, of our of our political condition, I would say. Uh, so uh, charisma. Yes, you know, we need better leaders. Uh, perhaps we need some other things. We like to poo-poo, uh, such as uh, some kind of transnational movements, movementism, uh, this idea of, you know, civil society actors and NGOs coming together and discussing things. Uh, it, it's often seen as a joke, right, uh, by people who study political theory of folks such as Lenin and whoever, right, uh, or, or who study, you know, realpolitik of, of Putin. Uh, and, and Mearsheimer. But, you know, all of those things uh, would elevate, have a tendency or at least have a potential to elevate our politics uh, to the level that's necessary to achieve some of the ends we mentioned earlier. So to go back to the MLK beyond Vietnam speech, you know, reduce poverty, uh, uh, racism, militarism, you know, to that one could add, uh, uh, you know, misogyny and, and uh, Lead, help us lead feminist lives, which is something that MLK, you know, did not necessarily think about. I don't think there is one answer, in, in short, uh, to this question. I, I think there there are many ways to to reach uh, to reach that uh, that height. Will the West rise to meet the challenges of the 21st century, or will it fragment? Time will tell. But I'd like to thank our guests for a fascinating discussion. If you'd like to read more from Serjan Vucetic, be sure to check out White Supremacy and Hegemonic Contestations on the International System of Power blog hosted by City University of London. There's a link in the show notes. And you absolutely have to visit Tim Luica's Transatlantica, www.transatlantica.com, and sign up to their newsletter to stay on top of all the great events and content they produce. And while you're at it, why not check out Tim's new book, Why Trump? A Road Trip in Search of Answers, co-authored with Sonia Niemeyer. And if you add to your order City Politics Podcast, you'll get free shipping to the UK or Canada. Shipping's already free to Germany and the United States. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at TheCityPolitics. You can also follow Constantine at K underscore Vossing and I am at GD Blunt. This has been the City Politics Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. A big thanks to our producer, Atina Dimitrova, and to Cambio for the music. Take care, everyone. I wonder how long it's going to take us to do another episode. Four? Maybe five years? I don't know. But anyway, I'll see you then. Bye. Bye.